Now, one thing I hadn't thought about until I saw it in that video was, what was Saul's motivation? See, if you're an Israelite and you're just very zealous and you're, you're, you're very, you want to get it right, you want to do good for God, because that, that's really, I think, what Paul's intention probably was. He had seen the history of the Jews rebelling against God, following false gods, not obeying God's law. And here comes this Jesus who's now messing with his system. Right In Paul's mind, Paul's seeing all these people are going to be led astray by this false Jesus guy. And so he's like, I'm going to fix this. And it's interesting, it reminds me of what we looked at a few weeks ago when we were studying. Actually, Paul says later in the Bible that he studied at the feet of Gamaliel. And we looked at him earlier when uh, the apostles are being persecuted And if you remember when I was talking about that, there was something profound about what Gamaliel said. If we could get to the Acts chapter 5 verse, it says that you might even be opposing God. See, Gamaliel's given advice. He's saying, if this is of God, it's going to succeed. You might find yourself opposing God. He's warning them. And it just makes me think about the times where Maybe I should stop and kind of go, am I doing the right thing here? Am I approaching something correctly? Or am I actually opposing the work of God by my attitude? By the way I'm responding to a situation? I mean, Paul was convinced he was right. He had the Jewish law. He was an expert. And yet, Gamaliel's wisdom rings in my ears as I read this. Paul found himself opposing God, and he didn't even know it. And I just think there's a little bit of wisdom in there for you and I when we consider what we're doing in life. We, we have to make decisions. We have to do things. But sometimes we need to stop and go, what is God doing here? And am, am I finding myself opposing the work of God? You know, it, again, it, it's the principle that we've talked about a little bit about is being right always the most important thing? That's a tough one. <laughs> we all still get quiet when we hear that because it's like, uh, yeah, I want to get it right, but at what cost? At what point do I find a balance in things? I mean, if I'm right about everything in my marriage, how's my marriage going to go? Oh, I'm right. Even if I am right, which I probably am. <laughs> right? You get what I'm saying? There's a point where I kind of, okay, what, what's the greater good here? What's the better thing? Where do I let go and recognize that God actually wants me to have a unified, not that I compromise ethically or morally, but that I do find a way to navigate difficult situations for the greater good. This is dangerous territory. <laughs> because, I mean, I'm sure you've been around somebody that, they're, they're never, ever wrong. They always get it right, and nobody wants to be with them. They have zero influence. They have zero impact on anyone's life. They're not accomplishing the work of the kingdom, but they're right. You understand what I'm saying? I think there's something we've got to think about here in terms of wisdom, because Paul's actually trapped in this. He's going house to house. He's arresting the Jesus followers. He's throwing them into prison. Later, when Paul says, I have a, th- a messenger of Satan, a thorn in my flesh, sometimes I wonder if it's his guilt. 
How could he ever let go of approving the execution of Stephen? How could he ever forgive himself for doing that? Can you imagine approving someone's execution and finding out he was innocent and you are partly to blame for his execution? Ooh, that would be a hard thing to live with. So let's think about it. We're going to move on from, from Saul, who is also Paul. Sorry, I didn't mention that. They're the same person, Saul and Paul, who wrote a tremendous part of the New Testament. We'll learn more about him next week and his story. But I just find it interesting. He's ravaging the church. He's persecuting the church. And because of this persecution, people are fleeing Jerusalem. But because of this fleeing, the gospel starts to spread And we move on into verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. What did they do when they were scattered? They didn't recluse themselves and not talk about what happened in Jerusalem. They start teaching wherever they go. There's There's a clue for you and I. Wherever we find ourselves, wherever our feet tread, wherever we work, wherever our activities are taking place, we're carrying with us a message of hope for the world. And when the church was persecuted and scattered, that's what they did. That's a clue for you and I, how we live. Wherever we go, are we bringing some good news? Are we bringing the truth of this gospel into other people's lives or the situations or circumstances where we find ourselves? That's what they did. I see that as an example to us. And then we start talking about Philip. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So up till this point, most of what we see and and the, the record of the book of Acts is that the signs and wonders were being performed by apostles, these people who were immediately close to Jesus. And and we don't necessarily know what extent that was going outside of that group of guys. But now we see Philip. This is not Philip the apostle. This is a different Philip, most Bible scholars believe. You can dig into that if you want. But this is a different Philip. They, They refer to him as Philip the evangelist later in the Bible. And he's sharing this news and he's performing signs and wonders. One thing that you cannot deny reading through the book of Acts, it is full of miracles. It is full of the power of God manifesting in human reality. And I don't think it's there just to wow us. It's there to teach us. We believe that signs and wonders are still a part of the body of Christ today. God still does powerful works amongst us. We may not see it at biblical proportions, but I'm hopeful. I believe it's possible. I don't know about you, but I want to see more of the power of God at work in my community. And one thing that we see as a result of these signs and wonders is that it's causing people to believe. There was a moment in time when Jesus said, if you can't believe my words, at least believe in the miracles themselves. Jesus was demonstrating with power that he is the new king, and these witnesses of this new king are also moving in power as a demonstration to the world around them who the real king is. It's Jesus. He's the one with the authority. He can overcome the natural. He can overcome the supernatural. He's the ultimate authority in this situation. And so they're starting, they're seeing signs and wonders in the church. And it puts you and I in a very difficult position of having to ask ourselves, what does this mean for us? Now, by and large, a significant amount of the church doesn't believe that signs and wonders are a part of the story anymore. 
we read them and we're encouraged by them, but once the Bible was finished, there is no more of this because there's no need for that to demonstrate the truth of, of Jesus being king. We don't believe that, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. We would look at this and go, there, there is, uh, to a certain extent, there's examples set for us about what God's people live like, what they bring into the world around them. And so you have to ask yourself some hard questions about what you really believe about the supernatural, what you really believe about the power of God manifesting in your reality. Do you really believe God heals? Do you really believe God casts out demons? Let's look at what it says. They saw the signs he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Okay, I just want to point out a couple of things that caught my attention in this. You know, a lot of our rationalization in the modern world pushes us to believe that um, there, there aren't really demons. There's just like physical infirmities and things like that. And in the ancient world, they just called them spirits, even though they were actual physical things. You hear what I'm saying? You know, a lot of us, a lot of people have pushed that direction. I don't know about you, but you don't get healed from a physical thing when a spirit comes screaming in a loud voice out of you. This is how it looked. With a loud screaming voice, evil spirit came out of a person. Isn't that amazing? So it's not just physical. It can't be explained away with just rational thinking. This is their description of the event. They thought this way. They saw the world through this lens. We'll talk a little bit about more in a minute. And verse 8, so there was much joy in that city. In a way, this makes me almost want to weep. I think, I want to see joy in my city. I want to see, some, I want to see people leave behind so, the oppressiveness and the depression and the brokenness and experience joy. Why are they experiencing joy? Because the power of God has been visited to them. A good news has come and it's been demonstrated through these signs and wonders. Philip is preaching something. What does it say? When they heard him, they heard what he was saying and they saw the signs and wonders. And there was so much joy. This is like an objective to me. It's suddenly I see this in the Bible and I go, this feels like an objective. I want to see joy in my city. I hope you all walk out of here today with some joy at who God is and what he does in our lives. Even if you're struggling, 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 I hope that you walk out of here with some joy hearing the truth of the early church that is still relevant for us today. Yes. I want joy in my city. Goes on in verse 9, we are introduced to a man named Simon, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. I don't know what kind of magic Simon did. Was it sorcery, supernatural magic? Was he an illusionist? I don't have any idea. But they all thought he was pretty cool. But Simon is having an amazing experience. It says, but when, when they believed Philip, what did they do? They believed Philip as he preached. This is key. There's something really important there. 
Philip is preaching and people are believing this good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Here's another thing you see consistently throughout the entire book of Acts. What is the people's response to accepting the message? Baptism. Baptism is a really big deal in the book of Acts. Now, here we are 2,000 years later, and we've seen all kinds of forms of baptism, ideas about baptism. Uh, you know, I was baptized in an infant. I don't need to get baptized again. I don't need to get baptized because it's not really necessary for salvation. Look, baptism is a really big deal in the Bible. Okay, and I would encourage you to make a big deal about it yourself. Yes, I do not believe you're saved because you got dunked in the water. I don't believe that. But baptism is an obedient response to God. In fact, we're going to have baptisms. Coming up in August, Lake Day. We're doing a Lake Day. Out at the lake, we will be doing baptisms. If you've never been baptized, let's get you baptized. Let's demonstrate to the world, I believe. Just like these believers in Acts, when Philip preaches to them, they believe, and and their response in belief is to then be baptized. The symbol that I'm washed clean in the new water. I'm made new. The old me is dying. All the things that baptism represents, participate in that. It is a powerful experience, and it's an obedience to God. So I would encourage you, whatever you think about baptism, reread the book of Acts and tell me it's not important. It's important. Consider it as a response to what you believe. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. This guy's a magician or a sorcerer, I'm not sure. But he is amazed at what Philip does with the power of Christ. And he becomes a believer. He's even baptized even, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, God accepts anybody, doesn't he? I mean, if, if Simon really is like some sort of uh, sorcerer practicing magical arts, like supernatural kind of things, which is very real, but God got his heart. God can get anybody's heart. God can get your heart. Even the hardest person that you know, God can get their heart. But Simon, he's amazed. And now we get into verse 14. Probably one of the most challenging little passages for, for theologians. I, I, I don't know about challenging, but controversial. How's that? Verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem, remember this is all beginning back in Jerusalem, heard that Samaria to the north had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So here's, here's the apostles back in Jerusalem. News comes to them. Hey, they're starting to believe in other places. This message is now starting to go out. It's starting to happen like Jesus said. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. I don't know what their report was to them, but I can imagine it was something like that. And so they say, Peter and John, go check it out. Make sure it's legit. Make sure they're on track. See what we can do to help. Wouldn't you do that? Hey, man, if I hear that, hey, everybody down in Boulder is getting saved, like, All right, let's go check it out. Let's see if we can help. Let's see what's going on. Isn't that part of our job as a church? Too? When we we, we want to get out into places and make sure that gospel is spreading, not just in our own city, but in other places. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and did what? They prayed for them that they might receive 
the Holy Spirit. So remember, this entire book of Acts begins with the Holy Spirit coming on Pentecost. The power coming. Remember the fire descending. We saw the fire again in the video. That symbolism is all throughout. But what's going on? They prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Why is this controversial? In the theological world, there's an entire spectrum of what the Holy Spirit is and does, what people believe. Okay, so when the Holy Spirit came in power and those guys started speaking in tongues, that moment at minimum is at least the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, the Bible says, refers to it four times in the Gospels and once in the book of Acts. And every time it's pointing at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes in power. And as a result, miraculous things start happening. Okay, these people are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now the issue becomes whether or not Christians need to seek an experience of baptism in the Holy Spirit after they're saved. So once you give your life to Christ... Do you have all of the Holy Spirit you need, or do you need to go get another experience? You can see how this becomes problematic. Because in some cases, uh, people get really dogmatic about it. Well, you stand on your head until you get a tingle in your arm, and then you pray this certain prayer, and and it all happens. You know? Okay, let me be more more specific. I'm going to lay hands on you, and I'm going to pray in tongues, and I'm going to pray until you repeat after me, and until you pray in tongues, you're probably not baptized in the Holy Spirit. A real systematic, dogmatic, formulated way. Then there's the other end of the spectrum. I got the Holy Spirit at salvation. I don't need anything else. But this passage presents a lot of problems if you think that way. Okay, where's J.R. at on this issue? I believe that we should be filled with the Holy Spirit... We should continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We should be always asking to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit prompts us to move, even if it's towards miraculous things, if you feel like God prompts you to pray for someone for healing, you do it. If you feel like God is encouraging you to pray in a tongue, pray in a tongue. Do it. I don't want to get stuck on the methodology of how that happens. I started explaining this a few weeks ago, and I didn't get very far into it. But for some of us, I don't really know the moment I was saved. I don't remember exactly what it was. I grew up in the church. I got saved 127 times because I was scared of going to hell. That's how it was for me. So what point was I actually saved? The one moment I felt the tinglys, the one moment I had a pic, I don't know. Well, J.R., how do you know you're saved then if you don't have evidence of your salvation? I don't need to give you evidence of my salvation. I know I'm saved. It's not a thing. And when it comes to the Holy Spirit, there are evidences of the Holy Spirit. We see them happen. But do we see them going around saying, are you praying in tongues? Oh, you're not. You must not be full of the Holy Spirit. Like, I just, I get it. There are evidences of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. There's actually evidences of the Holy Spirit in the entire Bible. But in the book of Acts, the two evidences we see are prophecy and, and speaking in tongues. But the problem with, that we've done with that is we've taken that and then going, if you don't do these things, you're not full of the Holy Spirit. 
But then I see the Bible repeatedly describing people as full of the Holy Spirit. Peter got up at Pentecost, and, he, and it says Peter being full of the Holy Spirit. Or when Peter gets up on the trial, he gets up, Peter being full of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't give us evidence of that, but they knew he was. Isn't that interesting? He didn't pray in tongues for them to show them that he was full of the Holy Spirit and then give them... Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, so here's where I'm at as an individual. Is that when you get saved, the Holy Spirit is there. He's a part of your life. He's a part of that salvation process. It doesn't happen without it. And I think from there, God invites you on a journey of a relationship with the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit is empowering you. And ask and keep on asking. Or we see this situation here. They, don't, they haven't had this experience yet. How did that experience happen for these guys? The apostles came. They laid hands on them. They prayed for them that they would receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit fell on them. So if you're in a situation where you go, I don't know if I'm full of the Holy Spirit. I don't really sense that or I haven't sensed it for a long time. Why don't you come get some prayer? I'd be happy to lay my hands on you and go, Lord, fill this person with your Holy Spirit. Empower this person to be who you've called them to be. Move in signs and wonders or whatever way you want to move in their life. This is an example for us, I think. Now, there's a lot of reverse engineering that gets done to say, well, this is just a unique experience and it's not meant to be. But I'm just not convinced of that. I just read through the book of Acts and I see over and over and over people full of the Holy Spirit. They're moving in power. And I, I've, I've, I've had both experiences as a young person in one situation, not believing in the power of the Holy Spirit at all, or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then part of my life, I was in a Pentecostal church where it was, you prayed in tongues or you weren't filled with the Holy Spirit. They did, it wasn't, prophecy wasn't even a thing. It was just all about tongues. Because out of the Azusa Street Revival in the early 1900s, tongues was a major sign that came out of that huge revival in California. And it was amazing work of God. Like, that's undeniable. It was just amazing. And why God chooses to use something like tongues is beyond me. I have no idea. I'm not sure that's what I would choose. But that's what he chooses. That's what he does. And, and when, a, when a church gets birthed out of a movement like that, they tend to institutionalize those things. And God keeps moving on, and they just camp out in that same spot forever and ever. And so I, I feel like, in a way, I'm, I'm a recovering Pentecostal. <laughs> you know, like, I, that was a lot of my experience, but... But I've grown beyond some of that too. I'm not, in fact, it got, some of that got reverse engineered to the point where if you don't pray in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you're not saved. I'm like, wait a minute. Now you've just turned all the theology on its head. This doesn't make sense. I, if you, a lot of you are like me. You had serious moments of insecurity in your life because of what you did or did not feel or experience. So there are a lot of extremes here. We have to just be patient and objective And read the scripture and learn from God and let him lead us in this. Let's not get too stuck on something. So whether you go through the laying on of hands and praying in tongues to to know that you're full of the spirit. Or you just woke up one day and knew that you were. I don't know that it matters that much how you got there. Get there. You understand what I'm saying? We just got to, I don't know, there's something in this that I think we have to keep wrestling with. Because Jesus is building his church. It doesn't say Jesus built his church and he's done now. He's still building it through you and I. And we're still learning and we're still growing and we're still developing. And I think we need to keep wrestling with some of these issues. 
My encouragement to you, though, is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ask God. What did Jesus say? Good Father gives good gifts. He gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Ask, 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 ask. And keep asking. We see repeatedly that the the adjective given to some of these guys is that so-and-so full of the Spirit. Why did they feel the need to add that little adjective in there anytime anything amazing happened? Because something amazing happened. They could tell they were full of the Spirit. Something. And we just have to wrestle with what those things are. But let's not just dismiss them in rationale. I want to read something to you. I'm not necessarily recommending this book yet. Okay, It's called The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser. But so far I like it. How's that? We'll just leave it at that. But he did capture some thoughts for me that were really helpful. Because I think, I think extremes and dogmatism, do you know what I mean by dogmatic? No. Okay, let me explain. <laughs> dogmatic is like ultra-rigid formulation. It's like, it's like um, I have to put in the name of Jesus at the end of my prayer or it won't be valid. That's kind of a dogmatic approach. Um, I, I need some better examples. You have to have someone lay hands on you. You have to pray in the tongue. It has to be in another 10 minutes or less. Whatever. You, very rigid, unflexible. Um, uh, it's like, you know, in some faiths, if you go to confession, like you, you, you don't have to really mean it necessarily, but if you go sit in a booth with a priest and you confess your sin, you're going through the actions, but there doesn't have to be any sort of actual heartfelt thing. I'm just doing what I have to do. That's kind of dogmatic as well. Am I, is that okay, Jeff? Do you have other good examples? All right, well, we'll move on. I don't want to drag us down a rabbit hole here. Uh, but I think extremes and inflexibility don't help us. And this guy describes kind of the, both sides of us. He's talking about the supernatural, which is kind of in line with what we're talking about, what we see in Acts. And uh, he talks about this. There are two basic reasons. This guy is not a charismatic, although he embraces a lot of it. There are two basic reasons why non-charismatics tend to close the door on the supernatural world. Okay, this is not necessarily us, but maybe you struggle with some of these things. One is their suspicion of that charismatic practices are detached from sound exegesis of Scripture. As a biblical scholar, it's easy for me to agree with that suspicion. But over time, it has widely degenerated into a closed-minded overreaction that is itself detached from the worldview of the biblical writers. The other less self-congratulatory. The believing church is bending under the weight of its own rationalism. This is why this stuff is so hard for you and I to accept in the culture we live. If we were growing up in a biblical day, supernatural is a part of life. My worldview of of how the world works and operates, supernatural is every day. But in, in our modern scientific mindset, which is not right, I don't think, I think we need to maintain a supernatural point of view, not just be, you know... Rational, rationalism is God in our society. A modern worldview that would be foreign to the biblical writers. Traditional Christian teaching has for centuries kept the unseen world at arm's length. We believe in the Godhead because there's no point in Christianity without it. The rest of the unseen world is handled with a whisper and a chuckle. Do you handle the idea of the move of the spirit or the supernatural with a whisper and a chuckle? 
because rationalism just shuts it down. Or you hear somebody saying, hey, I felt like God told me this. Hey, God healed this person. Hey, God moved in this situation. And everything in your being, your rationale kicks in and tries to shut it down. There's got to be some other explanation. But that's not the biblical worldview. That's the American rationalistic point of view that's kicking in. We got to recognize that when it's at work in our lives. So we've got this, on one end of the spectrum, we've got this skepticism that kicks in and rationalism that shuts down any belief in the move or the power of the spirit. But then we have the other end of the spectrum and this guy doesn't hold back his criticism of churches like ours when he says this. As soon as I find it. These two shortcomings, while seemingly quite different, are actually born of the same fundamental underlying problem. Okay, the second series of shortcomings is evident within the charismatic movement, the elevation of experience over scripture. I run into this at an alarming rate. I have to be honest, I've wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with how to talk about this and how to address it. But there is a certain kind of fanaticism or experience chasing that comes with the charismatic movement. Okay, if I didn't get goosebumps, the Holy Spirit wasn't there. I'm sorry, that's an anti-biblical view. That's 100% contrary to what the scripture teaches. I didn't feel anything. I didn't see anything, so the Spirit wasn't there. That is absolutely not what the Bible teaches. It's not an excuse to not pursue the supernatural components of God. It's not an excuse not to seek the filling of the Holy Spirit. But there's, it's on the other end of the spectrum. So if there's a revival going on in such and such a place, yeah, it's great for us to go and experience that. But then we have this idea like, that's right, and what I'm experiencing is wrong. Something must be wrong with me that I'm not, exper- I'm not feeling the Holy Ghost goosebumps. I'm not seeing all the miracles that I want. I mean, don't you wrestle with that? I wrestle with that. Why are my friends not healed all the time? Why does it only happen sometimes? Why do I not get the Holy Ghost goosebumps every Sunday in worship? Something must be wrong with Nick. We laugh, but that is what people do and think in the back of their mind. I don't like it. It's an overreaction. It's it's an extreme on one end. It's an experience-seeking concept of God. It doesn't, you know, we, we throw out the idea of church authority. We throw out the ideas of structure. We throw out the ideas of all the gifts. The only gifts that matter are the ones that are cool experiences for me. And so I'll go wherever that is because that's what God wants. Sorry. Why are, why are there signs? That's not true. Why are there signs and wonders in the Bible? So that you could enjoy them? Okay, that's a fringe benefit, I think. So that God demonstrates who the real king is. When someone grows a leg that didn't have a leg, there ain't no denying who the king is. Okay, that's what I want to see. I want to see Harvey get up and dance around this room Amen. out of that wheelchair. You know, I want to see my friends that have cancer be cured. Not so I can be cool or you can be cool and we can go, yay. But so our city can have joy. So people can go, wow, God is the king. And people begin, you know what the most miraculous thing is of all things? That a person who's dead is transformed to life on the inside. And nothing more miraculous than that. And again, none of that is an excuse to go, 
to, to not pursue the power of God. But let's be careful about where our heart is and where our mind is as we walk this journey. I am hopeful and confident, really, that God is going to move in power at Mount Helena Community Church. I've always believed that. But I also understand that God does things in his timing. God does things. He has purposes for things. He doesn't just give a weapon to a child. Okay, He doesn't put a thousand fish in a two foot wide fishing net. He's building maturity. He's building healthy thought. He's building strong community. He's building a people with a missional mindset. And when he pours his power into something like that, we can catch what he's bringing our direction. Do you? Do you are you picturing what I'm picturing here? I hope you're catching a little bit of vision here. But it's a process and it's a journey. So we want to embrace the supernatural power of God like the early church. We're not experienced thrill seekers and we're definitely not cessationists. We believe in the power of God here and now. Let's keep wrestling with him for that yes. and about that. And that's as far as I can go today. Would you stand please? Okay, here's the thing. As a response to this word this morning, to what we've read, I'm telling you, be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you've got to ask somebody for prayer to be filled with the Holy Spirit, do it. If you want to go home tonight and kneel by your bed and say, God, fill me with your Spirit, do it. Do not neglect that powerful gift that God has for you. You cannot live an empowered Christian life without the Holy Spirit right there working in power in you. Respond to him today. Lord, I thank you, God, for your power. God, for your Holy Spirit that gives us what we need to do what we need to do. From the little things to the big things. Like Philip even, the casting out demons and the paralyzed people being healed demonstrating your authority and your kingship in the world. God, that's so exciting, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to move forward with entrusting us, Lord, with, with demonstrations of your power in our community. Lord, we want to see a great number of people come to believe, just like these guys did. We want to see great joy in our city. We want to be a people who are trustworthy with your power, not like children just being entertained by it but that we understand the greater purposes behind what you're doing. God, lead us, I pray. Help us to be faithful followers of you. Lord, I pray for the individuals in this room who just are wrestling with different aspects of this message today. Whether we're on one of the end of the spectrum where we find it very hard to believe that God would do these kind of things today, or we're on the other end of the spectrum where maybe we're just a little bit thrill-seeking and not necessarily grounded in the scripture about the things that we believe. Wherever we're at, draw us close to you. Lead us, teach us, transform us. Thank you, Lord, for each one that's heard this word today. And I pray that it would go out and do what you send it out to do. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have a great holiday week, you guys. We'll see you back here next Sunday.